This is Steve Downs, the voice of Master Chief Sierra 117, with a shout out to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Keep your heads up during this time of isolation. Stay positive. Play some games. Most importantly, finish the fight. Thanks for listening to XEP. Master Chief, out. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 54 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Sunday, October 18th, 2020. I am your host, Luke Lore, the insipid ghost. In this episode, we welcome Clayton Kozlerik, creative director at Xbox and founder of Beef Games, to chat about his latest independent project, Bartlow's Dread Machine. Phil Spencer has addressed the Bethesda exclusivity and the possibility of Halo Infinite being released in pieces, and questions abound as to whether or not the Xbox Series X runs hot. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse, as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And as I am wont to do each and every week, I want to offer a quick word of thanks to someone who's made my gaming week better. And this week, I want to thank my friend Justin, who sent me his old Xbox 360. Man, an Xbox 360. He sent me one so that I could take a trip back into time and take a look at the old UI, the dashboard, and play some games that didn't quite make back and pad due to, to licensing agreements and the like. And man, oh man, what a treat it was to really see how far we've come in our Xbox ecosystem overall. When I think of my Xbox One, the controller, I don't think of a lot of differences off the bat from my Xbox 360. To me, they kind of have just run together in the theme of being Xbox. And perhaps that's due to recent messaging from Microsoft as to this forward compatibility that the platform is Game Pass or Xbox, and it's less about the console that you have. But whether or not that's a recent thing or not, I'm not sure, it was a fascinating trip back in time to pick up an old Xbox 360 controller and and feel what it felt like next to a standard Xbox One controller uh, now versus the launch one versus an Elite 2, which is my, my primary use controller, uh, and, and then to boot it up, or rather put it together to boot it up, you know, figuring out where the HDMI ports were, the old uh, connector type that allowed for composite cables if you wanted that. This was a slimline version, so you could just use the HDMI, which was great. Uh, but even noticing that the old 360s have a power brick, and what a what a, a mind-bending thought it was. A power brick? That's just strange. And, of course, now the consoles that I'm using now, the Xbox One X and, and the PlayStation 4 Slim, neither of them use power bricks at all. So it was strange to me to to even put together a power brick to, to turn this thing on. And then when I did turn it on, man, oh, man, what a trip back in time to the latest update of the Xbox 360 and just how far... The UI has transferred from the Xbox One in its you know, very beginning stages up to now was a pretty wild thing. I mean, it's an HD console, but it wasn't nearly as crisp as when I turn on my, my uh, One X right now. And of course, looking at the Series X stuff, it's not nearly as crisp. It's a bit clunkier. And, you know, I have all these fond memories of 360 and how efficient that dashboard was. But no, 
Not even a little bit, not compared to where it is now. And it's it's funny how spoiled we are for, for UI in its current time and what we expect from a UI as it evolves. The, the images were not crisp, navigating it was difficult. The store operates very differently than the ease of which it operates now. Uh, and yet we spend so much time, you know, praising the old Blade system. Of course, that's not what the this latest version is using, but praising the UIs of your. And then you go back and it's just like, wow, what a treat it is to think of how lucky we are in our current forums and then to see where we're going to go. What a wild uh, thought process. Uh, and then, of course, I'm trying to play some games that are not available on Back and Pat due to the licensing agreements. I've often talked about my fandom for the Arkham series, and there was the old portable game on Vita and 3DS, uh, Arkham Origins Blackgate, which is a smaller 2.5D Metroidvania-style game uh, for, for the Arkham series, but they made a deluxe version available on PS3 and 360 that didn't make the Back Compat program on Xbox, and I've been playing through that, and it is wild. Of course, it's a port up from a from a portable title, but man, oh man, is it's just so different to think of what we were playing, even on the original Arkham games up through to Arkham Knight and the, the future-fied versions for the Return to Arkham series. It's just, it's really a great way to think of how far we've come to, to take a step back and examine that, particularly on the eve of next-gen, and it makes me all the more appreciative of the efforts that Microsoft is doing to let us play older games on current consoles, and so we don't lose anything to time. Uh, in fact, we'll talk about not losing things to time uh, with Clayton Kozlerik, our our guest who created Voodoo Vince. I mean, he created Voodoo Vince, and then they had to remaster it because it could not come to back compat because of the way that they had coded it originally. It was a patchwork job of an assembly type called or a coding type called assembly. And it was just wild to think they had to re-release the game in a remastered form to make it work because of the the way that. Uh, the game was created. It was just, bottom line, uh, thank you to my friend Justin, of course, and if you've not had a chance to take a look back at an old UI for a system that you have fond memories of, whether it's a PS3, a PS2, PS1, Xbox OG, of course, the Xbox 360 was the one I referenced. If you haven't had a chance to go back and examine some of those UIs and just see how far along they've come, it's a real treat, and it really does help put into perspective how fortunate we are for the consoles we've had in this generation, their revamps, and what we're looking forward to in the next generation to come. As we march ever closer to next gen, it seems we are looking anywhere and everywhere for new comments and voices on what the next generation will bring. And Phil Spencer recently spoke to Kotaku uh, and shed a lot of light on what they meant for the Bethesda deal to be exclusive or not, uh, what they think for Halo Infinite going forward. And I want to give a, a comfortable shout out to Stephen Totillo. I believe he's the, one of the editors in chief over at Kotaku uh, for a, a really great piece of reporting and, and information in sitting down with Phil Spencer and talking about a number of those comments. It's funny. The idea of exclusivity was so clear-cut last generation. You know, it was either on Xbox, Nintendo, or PlayStation, and that's just what it was. And more questions, rather, seem to arise as to what it means to be exclusive. From my thought process, that really began when Microsoft um, had Play Anywhere and then just said, you know what, our games are going to be on PC as well. And and people went up in arms, you know, what does it mean to be exclusive then? I mean, are you you on, on Xbox console? No, it's available on PC. Does it matter? 
and we've seen other companies begin to adopt the idea that games can be available on PC and they still be considered exclusive. And now the question becomes not whether or not games can be released on PC, but can they be multi-platform and still first party? And I would argue Microsoft is a bit to blame for those questions uh, in the best ways possible. We've seen games like Ori end up over on the Nintendo Switch. Of course, Ori in the Will of the Wisps has ended up on Switch as well. And if you've not played that, that's one of the best games of the year. Check out Ori in the Will of the Wisps. So good. And now, of course, we wonder, all right, well, if Microsoft's letting Minecraft exist on multiple platforms, they're publishing games like Cuphead or Ori over on uh, other systems, will we see them lock down Bethesda content uh, away from the PlayStation 5? Because Bethesda is so well-renowned and so commonly uh, seen on other platforms. I mean, made a big to-do when they had their, their content shift over onto the Switch and what that could be for, you know, how do you get Doom running onto the Switch? It's impressive. And the question continues to arise, will Microsoft allow that stuff to keep happening? And there's been a lot of, I would say, vitriol about whether they should or should not. And I think it's a bit of an odd question, given that you spend $7.5 billion to acquire ZeniMax and get the Bethesda Studios and the IP under your banner to pilot Game Pass into the next gen with its big news. And then people wondering whether or not you'll put it over on the PlayStation. And the answer seems to be case by case, but really there's a strong hint and a strong feeling that we will see it uh, remain on Xbox platforms. And the delivery of those platforms is multifaceted. But I'll direct you to uh, Stephen Totilla's interview in which he asks Phil Spencer, quote, is it possible to recoup a $7.5 billion investment if you don't sell Elder Scrolls Six on the PlayStation? Yes, Spencer replied, and then he paused. I don't want to be flip about that. This deal was not done to take games away from another player base like that. Nowhere in the documentation that we put together was, how do we keep other players from playing these games? We want more people to be able to play games, not fewer people to be able to play games. But I'll also say in the model, and I'm just answering directly the question that you had, when I think about where people are going to play, are going to be playing and the number of devices that we had and we have xCloud and PC and Game Pass and our console base I don't have to go ship those games on any other platform other than the platforms that we support in order to kind of make the deal work for us whatever that means end quote and I think that is a pretty cut and dry answer of course they could be flexible and allow some of their live service games to enter into other platforms of course they're going to continue supporting games that already exist on other platforms lots of them available for PS4 of course you have Fallout 76 which is a living game uh, and big questions as to whether or not Starfield or the next Elder Scrolls will stay exclusive but it seems to me that Microsoft is intent on keeping those future titles in the Xbox ecosystem, which is now far more diverse than a new console. Even one new console, they've got the Series S and X, two different uh, consoles that do two different things. However, they play the same games, which is a really cool cool thought process. Uh, then, of course, you do have PC. You've got xCloud, and that can take you to any number of devices, even uh, information so setting up that it's going to be coming to the Xbox One at some point, and, and that is a, a, an exciting prospect. But when I think about exclusivity, and it's not something I've overly addressed on this show, to me, I do not see future 
Bethesda titles entering into any other platform apart from Xbox. I wonder if we wouldn't see Luna or Stadia cutting a deal. I would wonder, uh, again, if maybe some of the single-player games might make it to Nintendo's future projects, similar to the way the Switch does. However, uh, even Spencer has addressed that they have a great working relationship with Nintendo in letting you know Minecraft Steve and Banjo go to, to Smash Brothers and publishing Ori, but that it's not really an effective way to continue growing their content. I would imagine that Elder Scrolls 6 and any other future title remain in the Xbox ecosystem and available on all the Xbox platform series, S, X, any future iterations of that. xCloud is the big win there, and of course PC as well. There's a lot of places to check out Elder Scrolls or to check out what Starfield might bring later on in, uh, in time. Of course, if it were me, uh, of all Bethesda's catalog, it's really it's Doom that I'm super into, and I'm, I'm excited to play that. Of course, I'm in the Xbox ecosystem, but if I were a PlayStation side, that's what I'd be looking forward to. Do I miss out on the next Doom uh, or the next Machine Games title? I would, I would think that when I look at a quote like this, we're not going to see a whole lot of Bethesda content hitting future iterations of competitor consoles uh, or competitor services, Stadia, Luna notwithstanding. So uh, I, I appreciate the quote. I appreciate the question more than anything because it is a big investment, $7.5 billion. How do you make that money back? And the answer seems to be with subscription services, consistent player bases being alive and well and spending money in those ecosystems uh, and driving people to your console. We look ahead into next gen and it's very likely, and some of this does come from the same interview, it's very likely that we are going to see Xbox Series S and X sell out. Same with PlayStation 5. And of course, many an article will be written as to who sold more. But the reality is, in the first year, those are going to be manufacturing limitations. Those consoles will continuously sell out, particularly in a COVID era where video games are as popular as they are. Uh, they will continue to sell out because there will be high demand for both. And you really won't get an idea of where they stand as far as who's selling more until perhaps a year in. And that's simply due to manufacturing restrictions. You can only make so many consoles at one time, uh, COVID or otherwise, and people want them and will scoop them up. It's not a, a win or, or loss aspect. The secret weapon that continuously seems to come up in the competition for next gen uh, is referenced to be Xbox Series S. And Phil Spencer commented on that as well. And he made, uh, I would argue, points that we've made on this show, if we've made on other shows when I've been guesting. And of course, people have made this point plenty of times far without me. But it's the idea that players who skipped Xbox 360, or rather laps after Xbox 360, I should say. Like they, they saw Xbox One, was not, were not happy rather with what it offered and said to themselves, no, I'm going PlayStation. They are going to be looking into this next gen. And if I was a PlayStation gamer, I would stick with PlayStation because God of War is just unrivaled. The IP continue to, to be incredible. So if I was a lapsed Xbox gamer and I was looking at the future, I would definitely want to stick with PlayStation so I could continue getting those high-profile exclusive IPs. But if you have a lapsed Xbox gamer that is very interested in some of the incredible titles that Xbox does offer uh, exclusively on their platforms, you've got the Gears systems, Gear systems, you've got Gears, you've got Halo, of course, Sea of Thieves is a big one uh, for me as well. And you've got a console that's $300 like the Xbox Series S, Suddenly, you're not spending four and five hundred dollars per system, and there's a big difference there. The three hundred dollar entry point is perfect for second console, and because it's all digital, you'll be invested into that ecosystem. All the the money that you spend on a digital console will continue 
fueling Microsoft, Xbox, and those who are putting content on those devices. And you have to think that that's a great, I suppose weapon is the word I'm choosing for this, this metaphysical war, but a great weapon in the arsenal of keeping people engaged with your content. And whereas they might have a PlayStation 5, and say, oh, I could get this game uh, on my PlayStation 5, this third-party game, or I could just wait and have it on Game Pass because it's coming to Game Pass. Uh, of course, I used to think of Nintendo as my indie machine with my Switch. Haven't touched my Switch in forever because there's so many incredible indie titles that are landing into Game Pass. I mean, Katana Zero, the other night, guys, I played Katana Zero in my bed with my Razer Kishi controller with a better screen than my Switch ever offered, and it felt incredible via xCloud, and that to me was next-gen. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's cool to think that Microsoft is providing this as a method of competition without locking people out. And of course, from the same interview I referenced that Spencer said as much as far as having a, a cost-effective structure for people to enter with their hardware and he expects that he'll sell more Series S's in the lifetime than Xbox Series X's due to that price difference. He also noted that games will load a little bit faster on his Series S than X because they don't have to load in 4K-level rendering graphics. Of course, the, the big question is, on paper, it doesn't look like you're losing a lot with the Series S or X. Uh, you'll lose some 4K abilities here and there, and of course the disk drive. How much does that really affect the experience of the game? And does it matter? Well, I don't think it matters because switches sell like crazy and those screens are old, dated technology and they don't look great compared to a lot of modern phones that are out there. But as for whether or not uh, it will, will penetrate the market, yes, absolutely. It's cost effective. $300 and then what about when you go on a sale? Suddenly that you're, you're spending way less money. You've got money for games, Game Pass, headset, and that adds up right away to the cost of a PS5 or a Series X. And that is a wonderful way to enter enter the market. And so uh, I'm all about that. Series S to me is just a great way to bring people into our ecosystem to get more people playing on the Xbox platform, which means a stronger install base when Halo Infinite does launch, a stronger install base for games that already exist like Sea of Thieves, and then whatever it is, of course, that, that Bethesda does bring to the future. Continuing to reference this same interview, Phil Spencer was asked about Halo Infinite. Of course, Halo Infinite famously delayed back in, in August, and of course a huge detriment to the Xbox Series S and X lineup, and launch lineups, I should say. All the marketing is hitting for Halo Infinite right now with Taco Bell partnerships. Uh, you're seeing a lot of the toys, Halo Infinite toys that are branded, hitting the market. Of course, even the statue is going to be hitting the market uh, earlier than the game. And we have no accurate estimation as to when this game will truly come out. Joseph Staten even leaving his, his one of his posts at Microsoft to go help uh, bring this game to fruition. And a year or so ago, the questions began uh, arising. Would Halo Infinite release in pieces? What would they do with multiplayer? How would they handle single player? Is it open world? Is it not? And some of those questions have been answered. We know the multiplayer for Halo Infinite will be free to play. That is fantastic news. We're talking about the very large Xbox ecosystem and the install base and getting more people in and playing it, keeping it healthy. That's important. Uh, I think that's a great move for Halo to combat with the relevancy of games like Call of Duty, Fortnite, Apex, etc. So we know that it's going to be free to play. 
But as to whether or not you get the multiplayer at a different time than, say, the co-op versions, like, like Horde Mode or Firefight, as they call it in Halo, uh, or if you would get the equivalent of Spartan Ops or a full the full campaign, when and how that would be delivered, that question has been pondered quite a bit. And in this same interview, Steven Subtillo asked Phil Spencer what he was going to, to do with Halo Infinite or how they would release it. Would they release it in parts? And Phil seemed to give credit to Bonnie Ross, who is the head of the Halo franchise, to make a lot of those decisions. And I'll read you his statement. Quote, Bonnie and the team will, will drive those decisions. But I think we want to make sure people feel like they have a Halo experience. I think we can look at options like that. So, yeah, I think there's something to think about, but we want to make sure that we do it right, end quote. And to me, there's a bit of vagary and pausing in how he's going to to get Halo to market. But whereas initially I scoffed personally at the idea of releasing it in pieces, I was not a fan of that idea. If the multiplayer is free to play, I think that bothers me a little bit less. And over time, it's more to me about sending and delivering the right messages that Halo is a respected franchise that is cared for and loved by the Xbox developers, by 343. Uh, There's so much debate constantly about whether or not 343 is up to the challenge, which to me is just a ludicrous, ludicrous argument. There are some incredible developers out there, and 343 has delivered two, I would say, very good games. Halo 4, an incredible campaign. The multiplayer might have disappointed on Halo expectation levels, whereas it flips, of course, with Halo 5, the multiplayer uh, delivering in spades, and people a bit down on the writing of the campaign. But technically speaking, Halo 5, incredible game. Halo 4 is a masterpiece of visual art on the 360. How they got that thing working is beyond me. And uh, now it's a matter of capturing the feel and the vibe to bring people back into the world of Halo and get people excited for it. It is an important franchise for Microsoft. I would argue, given the Bethesda acquisition, given the consistent delivery of content that they're setting up for with their now 25 studios, I would argue it's less important than it once was. There used to be a time where it felt like everything rode on the next exclusive for Microsoft because it often does with Sony and Nintendo. But I don't think that's the case any longer. It used to be, oh, you know, we have that Xbox year with with Sea of Thieves and Crackdown 3 and State of Decay and what's that going to do? And it's not the same as that anymore. It's it's no longer the same level of conversation and the same type of delivering of content. And uh, when it comes to Halo, as long as the game is respected... And I mean that by the the creators and it's not rushed out, put out early, delaying it seems to be in the right choice given the reception that people had to the the demo. Uh, As long as the game feels respected, I will be quite happy and pleased with it because for me, Halo is about campaign. It's about co-op and fun within that. The competitive side is less necessary for me as I get older and... Uh, maybe maybe that's different for some others, but as long as Halo is released respectfully by its creators, I don't mind if it releases in chunks or in pieces. Uh, I just want a great Halo game to play. And, you know, the, the delivery of content in games in 2020 and beyond has been very different than in, in generations past, in years past, and I look forward to seeing that continue to evolve. Several weeks back, some influencers who got their hands on the Xbox Series X early noted in a stream or a podcast conversation, stream type conversation, that the Xbox Series X was running very hot. They put their hand on it and were surprised as to how warm it was, and they noted it out loud. And the internet took that and ran with it, and a lot of people questioning, man, is this thing too hot? Is this a a big old problem here? And that is a 
a logical response in the history of Microsoft to a point. And I say to a point because let's we, we think back to the Xbox 360 and the Red Ring of Death in which uh, some, some faulty soldering and faulty creation, and perhaps a, you could just straight up call it a design flaw in the Xbox 360, led to a Red Ring of Death problem in which tons of people uh, would be playing their Xbox 360 to a point. The system would overheat, red ring, and became unplayable. And that led Peter Moore and the Xbox team of your, ha, I rhymed, to convince Microsoft to spend a lot of money to recall these units. They paid for shipping, fixed and, and repaired them, and sent them back. And then, of course, the 360 had multiple redesigns and revisions to fix that. Fears of that same overheating type issue with the Xbox One led to it being comically large early on with lots of ventral structures uh, to keep heat from, uh, from storing up within the unit and to dissipate well. And of course, we've even seen those addressed in the subsequent series, uh, Xbox One S and X launches. Well, the Series X, of course, can be a tower-based design in which you stand it vertically or you can lay it horizontally, but it has an essentially an exhaust port and that, that pushes the warm air out of the system. And all of these more modern systems and PCs do this, right? You see the, the remarkably large PlayStation 5 unit that seems to, to brute force its way through that heat issue, whereas the Xbox One uh, created that, that odd ventral structure uh, tower design to, to push heat out that way. Dealing with heat for these very powerful systems is something that you can fully expect. And if you put your hands behind an Xbox One X while it's running and playing a game that's that's demanding, even in idle position, truly, uh, you'll be surprised as to how warm that system gets. I mean, I've been shocked multiple times with just how hot my Gears of War One X runs, because that's the latest and greatest of the Xbox Ones, and that thing runs very warm. Uh, surprisingly so i should say but overheating and running hot are very different than being warm and of course ign and windows central and several others reported that the series x and they did some tests they reported the series x is running cooler than the one x and pcs with with uh, similar specs and comparisons and they would run the same games and apps uh, in comparative tests and it, apparently it, it has very little cause for concern uh, truly, of course, these are early units, prototype units, influencer units that are out there, not the mass market stuff. But Ryan McCaffrey even pointed out in his, I would argue, excellent reporting on this, that he was able to run these tests and then put his hand over top of the, the ventral part ports to feel the heat from the unit and he said he could put his hand there with no discomfort it would feel warm but there wasn't any discomfort and that to me eased a lot of my worries uh, about this i was not worried in general if i'm being blunt with you because they've done such a great job with the engineering of the series uh s and x in terms of of the amount of technology they're packing in there and i was supported in that concept and idea by playing with the xbox one s and x systems where those systems are packed with technology and they dissipate heat rather well Games uh, will demand a lot from your systems going forward. It's what we expect when we when we turn it on. We get the latest and greatest and, and impressive visuals and, and great AI and machine learning. And that requires effort on the technology. And it's going to generate heat. And it's just going to do that. Uh, but I was less burdened, I suppose, when I saw Windows Central's reports, when I saw IGN's reports, and our friend Jeff Grubb, of course, tested it as well. And it seems as though the Series X does not even not have anything where close to a heating problem, uh, an overheating problem, I should say. And so I was uh, less worried on that one. And and 
Of course, we'll see when the units hit market, but I can't imagine Xbox would put all that money into that design and creating such a powerful piece of technology and not account for that. And, of course, PlayStation doing the same thing uh, with their very large PlayStation 5, and they're using that, that brute force size to dissipate that heat. So we'll see, but I don't think it's a big deal, uh, whereas a lot of people were worried about it prior. Hi, this is Jeremy Gritton, art director and story lead for Ori and the Will of the Wisps and you're listening to the Xbox Expansion Pass. It's time for a listener mail, and if you've got questions for XEP, you can always tweet them at, at InsipidGhost over on Twitter. Of course, you can DM me. My DMs are always open. And, of course, you can email me, insipidghost at gmail.com. Our first question comes from Todd Oxtra, and he says, Now that Rock Band 4 has been announced to be back in Pat with the Xbox Series games, which games would you like to see brought back from the OG Xbox and 360 Abyss? Todd, I, I get this question a lot, and the truth is it really comes down to me as those games that are gated by licensing agreements, and I don't know how you do that in their version of the current Back and Pat program, and I don't know if you run a full emulator and your disc will just work, or your downloads will just be accessible if you've already downloaded it, but... Of course, I'm playing the Arkham Origins Blackgate. I talked about that at the top of the show. I have the Captain America Winter, First Avenger, Winter Soldier? No, First Avenger, uh, Xbox 360 game that I never got to play. And some, Star Trek Legacy is one of my favorite 360 games. But it's the games that are gated by, behind licensing and things that I didn't get to experience in their time and probably weren't great games, and that's why they've not been pushed forward. But I don't like games being lost to technology. I think about the Wii and a lot of the great games available on Wii that are not playable any longer due to technology restrictions or Nintendo's poor virtual console abandonment. Uh, I don't like the idea of games being lost. So a lot of the licensing games, uh, licensed-based games, to me, are, are a big deal, and I want to see those come back. Of course, I have a strong affinity for uh, lots of nerdy brands like Star Trek and Star Wars and uh, superheroes and the like. Star Wars has done a very good job at letting a lot of their games be forward compatible but i've never played that obi-wan game back on the og xbox i would love to check that out uh, i often think about that if i'm being honest with you because that was one of those games that way back when as a kid i was like man if i had an xbox i would get that game for sure uh, but i was a playstation kid uh, in the playstation 2 era and, and i'm confident in that choice and but then i also played gamecube for star wars games but i never got to play obi-wan so that would be one as well uh, i i just want to see those licensing games find a way to make their game their Find a way to come forward in time, and if there's a way to get those there, uh, I would love to see that. Famous Seamus writing in, as he does every week, and Famous Seamus, I gotta say, thank you so much, man. It's always appreciated when I get to put out the call for, for questions, and I see your name and Todd Oxer's name popping up every single time. Uh, always appreciated. Uh, you ask this week, now that we've seen the Xbox and PS5 UIs, uh, which do you, I think, look better? I'll be honest with you, Famous, I don't really have a strong opinion on this one. Uh, of course, as you noted in your tweet to me, we're using the, the Xbox Series X UI, uh, or at least a bastardized version of it, on the Xbox One now, thanks to the latest update. And I love the latest update to the Xbox UI. I think it's very clean, very efficient, and it makes me all the more excited at what the Series S and X UIs will bring. I'm, I'm very comfortable in the Xbox ecosystem. I think the... Xbox UI right now is far better than the PlayStation's UI as it stands. At the beginning of the generation, I did not have that opinion, but as the PlayStation gained more, um, I suppose, the 
uh, more abilities to and to produce more content and more games became available kind of like the switch that early simplicity ended up backfiring with a difficulty of navigation later on to find the content that i wanted uh, whereas xbox continued to iterate and xbox one's ui at the very early launch was just atrocious uh, all the way to now it's a big big difference and i'm very much looking forward to playing it on my series x so at present I don't have strong feelings. It's kind of like when you have an Android or iPhone. You're comfortable in there. You can navigate it pretty easily. But right now, I'm very comfortable with the Xbox UI, and I like it a lot. And when I'm able to get my hands on a PS5, because I wasn't able to get a pre-order early on, when I'm able to, I'm anxious to kind of put them to the true litmus test, which is just using them, uh, because I'm, I'm so excited to play Miles Morales and Miles Meowis. Huh, Spider-Cat looks cool. Uh, I'm so excited to to play that game. Uh, once I can get my hands on a PS5. But yeah, right now I'm leaning Xbox. Of course, I'm biased in that respect because that's my primary system and I'm comfortable in that UI as it is. You asked a second question and you said, uh, what horror movie would you like to see uh, or like to see get a game on the Xbox Series X and that will take advantage of the Series X's power? My answer is Train to Busan. That would be awesome to see all the zombies on screen running to get you. And then you also referenced The Thing as well. That is a great idea. Train to Busan, uh, I've not seen in its entirety, but it looks terrifying. If you've not played World War Z, Famous Seamus, that game did a fantastic job with hordes and hordes of zombies. And that is a, a strong contender to me for for a a near accurate zombie game in terms of the types of zombies that run fast and, and hoard you up like that. If you've not played World War Z, you should definitely do that. I'm not sure if it's still on Game Pass or not, but it's well worth the money. Fantastic game there. As far as which horror game or horror movie, the tr I'm not good when it comes to horror. It's an anxiety thing, so I, I kind of stay away from horror movies uh, overall, and a lot of them are more about spooky uh, vibes. I really liked the horror movies or shows watching evil right now where they go slow methodically and uncover mysteries. And it seems that on some levels, that's what you're getting when you play a lot of the bloober titles with like, like looking at the coverage coverage of the medium. I really liked Blair, Witch, the most recent Blair, Witch game, I thought that was very good. And so it surprised me because I have no love for the Blair, Witch franchise. But when I think of my favorite horror movies like Halloween two or Halloween four, the older ones, uh, the others, uh, I'm thinking about just, just horror movies in general, they pop in my mind, and they're not game movies that would lend themselves to great games. So the tr I really like your answer, Train to Busan. Zombies are my jam. I love zombies and, and fighting zombies in different games. Of course, uh, Zombie Army Trilogy, Zombie Army 4, some of my favorite games to, to play. Uh, seeing how Next Gen handles those would be great. But, man, if you do not play World War Z, that's the one right there. That's going to do it for the listener mail portion of this show. And again, if you ever want to write in, I, I love answering questions. Uh, InsipidGhost over on Twitter or InsipidGhost at gmail.com. We're going to be sending you over to an interview with Clayton Kozlerik. That's a name that Xbox fans should take note of as he worked with Phil Spencer originally on Voodoo Vince, created Voodoo Vince. Uh, he is a creative director right now over at Xbox. And the capacity that we had him in or had him on the show as was founder of Beep Games and his latest independent project because not only is he a creative director at Xbox by day, he's an independent developer by night. He founded Beep Games. His latest project is called Bartlow's Dread Machine. 
And this was an interview that I was turned on to, I suppose, uh, by a listener named Skedaddle. Tweeted me, DM'd me, and said, uh, you know, you should be looking into Clayton Kozlarik. You should be checking him out. This is why. Explained to me a bit of Clayton's career and the importance that he had to the Xbox ecosystem overall and what he could do. Uh, and so what I did was I, I bought Bartlow's Dread Machine, his latest project, started playing it, and it is an on-rails uh, on rails is not the right way to put it, I suppose. It's a twin stick shooter in which you are playing through a very, very old style arcade shoot 'em up machine, but your character runs on tracks. There's an almost impossible, it's impossible to describe Bartlow's Dread Machine well without you looking it up. But I love twin sticks, so I booted this one up. Weird and eclectic style, as it were. Characters are not quite puppets uh, per se, but an incredibly cool art style. Started playing it, and guys, I gotta tell you, Bartlow's Dread Machine, super fun game. Super fun game. It's about 15 bucks. If you like twin sticks, it's a must-buy. If you're a twin stick shooter fan, definitely need to check this out. But I started playing it, and I'm like, man, this is a blast. And I emailed uh, Beep Games, asked them to come on, or asked Clayton to come on, and he was gracious enough to do so. And we had an incredible conversation. And it's funny to me how I'll have guests on the show. I think about Malik last week. I got very emotional talking with Malik because of all the joy that it brought. And when you get to talk to creators or people in the industry that enjoy what they do, that tends to affect you as you listen to them. And listening to Clayton talk about his projects, about uh, his time at Microsoft, about what he's done in the gaming industry, uh, creating Voodoo Vince. He even laughed at me when I, I called Voodoo Vince iconic, uh, which was which was when he's like, iconic? Huh? Maybe he was uh, he was beloved but not popular. And there's just a fun time there. Clayton was a, an absolute joy to talk to. So enjoy the interview. Check out Bartlow's Dread Machine. I really love it for Twin Sticks. I just, out of the, the love for talking to Clayton, I purchased Voodoo Vince Remastered. I've not booted up at, uh, yet at this point. I'm going to play it uh, just because I'm curious as to what Voodoo Vince is all about. I've looked at plenty of videos of it. It looks really fun from, from back in the day in the, the old days of platforming. But uh, take, check out Clayton Kozlarik's work. It's pretty neat to see. I hope you enjoy the interview. If you do, if you do enjoy it, please reach out to him on Twitter. Uh, you'll, of course, see him tagged from me in our next upcoming episode. And let him know, because when people are informed that they were, were appreciated for being on the shows, that makes a big difference for me. And then lastly, I will say, if you have somebody you want me to uh, have onto the show the way that our friend Skedaddle did, then just tweet me, DM me, email me, let me know, and I will be glad to reach out to different people. I don't mind reaching out and getting the rejection letter. I love when I get the acceptance letters. It's always fun to talk to creators in the industry, and if they can give us insight into the Xbox ecosystem, they are always welcome here. That's it for me. Take care, guys. Alrighty, we are very fortunate now to welcome Clayton Kozlarik to the show, founder of Beef Games, a creative director over at Xbox Game Studios, and a number of other titles therein. Clayton, welcome to the show. Hi, great, to, nice to be here. I am ecstatic to have you, and you are a listener-requested guest on the show, here to talk about Bartlow's Dread Machine, uh, a twin-stick shooter with an incredible description, but I would love to hear your description of your game before I try to make sense of it, because it's, it's wildly cool. Yeah, so, it, yeah, well, thank you very much. It's a, Yeah, it's a twin-stick shooter, um, you know, very much in the style of kind of like a bullet hell arcade kind of game, but uh, with the kind of twist of, you know, 
exploring the idea of like what it would be like if someone built a real video game like over a hundred years ago. Like what what would what would it be like if it was all mechanical and everything had to articulate and fold and um, kind of adhere to the rules of what, what would might have existed on old like tin um, arcade games back in the day. Um, so taking kind of like very very old school. Um, a really old school, like truly old school, you know, mm-hmm. game design, but also combining it with, you know, more modern things like what, what might that have been like if they had things like weapons and upgrades and outfits for characters and, and all that kind of stuff too. So, um, uh, it's, it's a concept that I had wanted to make for, um, a long time, like over like 11, 12 years. Um, it was just always on a back burner. It was always something that I kept sort of like playing with and I do a little mock up or a little, a little test area or something like that, just kind of visually exploring what it, what it might have been like. And then, um, when, um, uh, a friend of mine, uh, named Matt Hostery, um, and his company tried toy just finished up a game. And, like it was a cool VR game called bound of blood. And they were kind of looking around for like another project. And we'd always talked about maybe collaborating on something or building something together. And that's when I sort of said, Hey, I have this crazy idea for this. Like what, what if a, a game was from 1907, which, uh, doesn't always sound like the, it doesn't sound like the greatest pitch ever, but, <laughs> um, then, then I explained more about like what it was, you know, the, the tone of it and the mood and the feel and everything. And, um, that really kind of, you know, he just latched onto it and, um, he and his team of four people, um, just started in on the game about a year and a half ago. And I just think they just hit it out of the park as far as like, kind of landing the look and the style and the feel and all those things that I, that I was kind of dreaming of for this idea. So let's talk about that look style and feel. And then I have to get to fact a year and a half. That's it. Wow. So the look style and feel, it is what would be a tin arcade machine from, from over a hundred years ago at this point, but you guys have articulated and shown, you can see gears moving. You can see yeah. the characters on screen, uh, not quite puppeteers or marionettes, but, but, but the, you can see just little metal elements moving things about. That is a wildly cool concept. How did you come up with that specifically, and then how did you create that in the gaming world? Uh, yeah, it, it's a sort of um, like again, it, it existed kind of as a concept. And again, I did I did a lot of visual mockups because I, I started as an artist in the game industry, so I, I tend to kind of process everything really visually. And what I have are just I don't know thousands and thousands of pages of old like Victorian clip art and. I would just sort of I would scan objects and then I would add little nut bolts and like little, little gears and things to them. And I, and I did some mock-ups like that, a, a couple. That I, and I thought, well, there might be something here. And I had a character on a little track, so I thought, well, let, let's take, you know, uh, Robotron and Pac-Man and stick them together because it seems like the limitations of our old games, our old electronic games, are very similar to the kind of limitations that would exist in, on a mechanical game. You know, we only had so much memory. You only had so many, you know, pieces of art that you could put onto those little tiny, you know, bits of memory that, that all the games lived in back then. And I, I felt like a mechanical game would have some of the same limitations. So I felt like old school electric, you know, arcade games would also be a good template for old school mechanical game as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, and then that, and again, it only existed as art. It only existed as things. And, and I had a sort of a design document. I started adding things to it and thinking about, well, what's the story and what's, what, what kind of locations would be fun? And, and originally we had something like, oh gosh, we had eight, I think, worlds we were going to do originally. We ended up like trimming a couple of them because we realized, again, as small as the team was and with the resources we had, we just couldn't do all of them. Um, but then, you know, um, Matt, again, we had sort of that template, the, if you will, the, the visual thumbprint was sort of there. But then interpreting that into something that was, you know, three-dimensional and you could play it and it was fun um, – you know, we stayed in what, what was a gray box kind of mode for a while where you could play through a lot of the game with zero art. You could just move boxes around and shoot other boxes that were moving on the tracks because the first thing we wanted to know is, well, that 
this this weird like hey can does does the tracks with choice that like allow you to like turn and move and make you know think about things does that work with a, a twin stick sort of mechanic um and we thought so we th- we it, we thought it was promising enough that we just kept doing it and then after we basically had just about the entire game roughed in then Matt and his team and his just amazing amazing artists um went in and started to flesh out that and just add add the visuals and um and we, we went back and forth a little bit um in the original concepts the characters were going to be like 2D placards um but pretty early on you realize yeah but when they turn and there's angles and they're moving away from you they would be too thin to really look good um also that makes getting hit and aiming kind of weird you know so very quickly went over to fully three-dimensional characters, but we did keep things like um, those those backgrounds you see just scrolling by, you know, those kinds of things, because we, we wanted that old, like, tin type, something out of, like, almost like an old magazine from 100 years ago, kind of look to kind of still suffuse everything and give it kind of a, you know, some some kind of mood. And um, and then uh, then there was destructibility, you know, the um, wanted to make sure that everything could sustain damage that you could like just the character get, looks like Swiss cheese, you know, when they're low on health, which I'm sure you've seen. <laughs> oh, I've seen that too often. Good, sir. But it's yeah. cool to watch as, as you interact with the environment, just by way of bullets, uh-huh. uh, damage happening in the background and then seeing your own character with his outfits that are, some of them, which are unlockable, take that damage and really look holy huh, at the end of the, uh, at the end of the level was, was pretty darn cool. Yeah, and 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 I, I, the the phrase I used for that in my original design was delightful destruction. It's like just just put it into everything, and it's gratuitous, and it doesn't really necessarily influence the gameplay. But there's that feeling that it's like, yeah, this is cool. It's really there. It's really physical. Mm-hmm. Um, just trying to sell that idea of the physicality of of the game. And that's a big part of that. I think about that physicality, and then you, you mentioned the scrolling backgrounds, and one of my favorite levels was driving a car in which you can see the mechanical arm help maneuver the car <laughs> through uh, different barriers. But you've got elements of, of the background uh, where you're taking shots, showing damage there. Some of the levels thus far in my playthrough have been rather spooky, I would say. Haunted's not the right word, maybe, but going through a police station, and then there's zombies and monsters. Tell me about that idea put together with the idea of being an agent saving the president. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, um, I, and this is one thing, again, I think that uh, Matt Hostry, you know, at, at Tribe Toy, you know, um, really, really brought as, as his design sensibility, and that is to change things up, you know, because certainly if you have just your kind of basic level where you're moving around and there's monsters to, to, to shoot at, that that's fun. But changing up the perspective, changing up the camera angle, um, doing those things on a regular enough basis that things uh, hopefully stay fresh. And um, what we realized, I think, early on when when Matt uh, and his team were prototyping that level, the yeah, the station house, um, was that suddenly the, the the whole feel of the game changes because you know when it goes from being kind of an open bullet hell kind of kind of world to jump scare. You know, it's, it's, it's suddenly it's oh shit, oh shit, ah! this thing's just coming out at you very very quickly. And, you know, and if you haven't, if you haven't got the hang of how to like do a quick 180 when you're shooting at things, you know, you're, you're going to have a tough time in, in some of those levels. Um, but it was also like we, we intentionally like cut the music. We, we had no music in that level because we just wanted it to be spooky and, 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 and suspenseful. And, um, I thought that, yeah, that worked out pretty well. I'm glad you noticed. Um, but, but again, part of that was, again, sometimes it's really cool to go in really close and then it's about like almost like twitch and jump kind of stuff. And then further out, you can be almost tactical where you're using cover and you're thinking about the routes of the things that are coming at you and trying to plan those and bottleneck the enemies and um, all that stuff. And it all sort of applies across the whole game, but just changing up the, the pacing a bit just, you know, keeps it fresh. 
Well, you know, that pacing, and to any listener who's unaware, some of the levels take place where you're on a mechanical track, right to left, left to right, but then the camera will pan in different elements, and you'll have top-down aspects of it, taking on, of course, the car I mentioned, uh, and then angling things to, to have that different environment. In my mind, Clayton, you guys had fun testing out and messing around with these levels. Am I correct in that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, that. I mean, I don't know. I, I think you can really tell when someone really enjoys their own game. <laughs> and um, and certainly it's possible to work on something and be, you know, kind of get the, the blinders on and maybe not even realize or, or you know, or, or see what you're doing. And sometimes that happens when maybe, you know, you don't play your own game enough. And um, I've always been a big believer in anything I work on that you, you get your hands on it, you play it, you play it on a regular basis. And, and you try to understand it. it. It can lead to maybe the game being super hard <laughs> because <laughs> because the people who make it get really good at it um, at the same time, I am. I'm, I'm not in any danger of that. Matt's, Matt's definitely much more of a master at, at Red Machine than I am. So, um, but yeah, that's. Uh, Did you guys ever play with any old mechanical ar- arcade machines ahead of designing for this one? Not, not a whole lot. I mean, um, um, I, I keep talking about Mr. Hostry because um, you know he he grew up helping his dad go out and service old arcade machines mm-hmm. like when he was a kid. So you know his dad would take him around, and you know his dad his dad had sort of like this. Uh, um, this business where he would, you know, he would put, um, you know, arcade machines in, in bars and other places. And so young, young Matt would go along and of course he, he was allowed to play them all, you know, um, all he wanted. Um, and that's sort of like where he got his first love of, um, you know, video games and, and like even the, the ability to, I think, get in and like mess with the dip switches and stuff like that, you know, so you could, mm-hmm. um, and, and you know, eventually of course he became a game designer and all kinds of other stuff. But, um, uh, so that's kind of in his DNA. In my case, I just like creepy old things. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so like again, the, the things like these old, um, you know, uh, materials, print materials. I was buying old, you know, um, old magazines from like like the uh, 1890s up up till like 1910. I actually have old old catalogs because we wanted to make sure that things for like hats and like weird spats on people's clothing. I mean, there's there's detail that you don't really necessarily even see in the game. But getting into it was like again for someone like doing creative direction, art direction, um, is like it's like it was so fun. <laughs> it was just so cool to get into that stuff because I again I don't um, you don't see it every day in in a game. Uh, I don't I don't think it's a theme that's been overdone. So um, it was kind of cool just to say well what can we bring to this and what would be um, what would help just again give this thing just its own kind of personality. It very much has that because if you say twin stick shooter. Uh, certain games will jump to my mind and certain styles will jump to mind. You see the art of this, the cover art, as it were, uh, and I had no idea what I was going to be looking at. It wasn't until I, I shared gameplay clips that people were like, now I see what you mean. Now I know what we're going for. And I would have to imagine the elevator or talking to people about this without having them see it was probably difficult early on. A little bit because I, I think you get someone saying, oh, that sounds neat. But then not really knowing what it was. In fact, I even said, "Hey, there's little tracks and there's characters," and, <laughs> and then I'd get, you know, I could get blank stares, or or even the question, "Well, yeah, but what's the game?" Um, uh, and to be fair, you know, if it's a, if it's a thought experiment, you never know what you're going to get. You never know how good it's going to be uh, until you get your hands on it and you really try it and you really really play it. So um, e- even though I had this notion of what I wanted to do, I didn't know if it was really valid, you know, um, to that point. But uh, yeah, it's um. It was also interesting because, you know, it's it's gameplay styles that are typically two dimensional. So, you know, when when you're playing Robotron or anything, you know, like you're really just it's all just two dimensional Pac-Man, it's two dimensional. Um, the fact that there is some perspective where the board is tilted a little bit 
Um, is that fun to make a diagonal? You know, like when you're in the, the close foreground, there's, some, there's something way, way back there. And you, you do have to do a little bit of sort of internal calculus of your own while you're playing to kind of do those. And, and you know, it's um, cert- certainly some weapons we have because they, they level up and they change and their properties are actually kind of different. Um, some maybe make that immediately more fun than others as you as you begin to work your way through the, like the types of weapons in the game. But again, was that like um, I don't know? I was I was calling it like a box perspective shooter where you know it's sort of not really third person. It's not really you know it it's 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 its own kind of thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, I think some players take to that. Maybe some don't um, because you do have to kind of get your head around the fact that it's still three dimensional, even though the gameplay is effectively two dimensional. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now you earlier you said a year and a half. In my experience, in my experience interviewing people, I suppose that's a short window. <laughs> well, I think we did some pre-production, and I was certainly working on the design document, and there were some early, early tests, kind of like at a, at a, at a very um, kind of more casual, kind of a small level for maybe six months before that. You can call it two years all in, but we didn't really ramp up actually building things in a really serious way until yeah, it would have been late summer. Of uh, like twenty, uh, yeah, it would have been yeah about a, yeah, a year and a half ago. So yeah, brilliant. 20, brilliant. 20, I I I've lost track of what years we're in now. So uh, well, well, in COVID time, they all count as triple. <laughs> it is time. Time has become quite weird. <laughs> it, it very much has. I was thinking about game of the year stuff and whatnot because we're about that time of year where people start talking and. I could not, I did not realize that even Ori 2 was this year, or Ori in the World of the Wisps was this year. I was like, wow. Yeah. That, yeah. that was, to me, that's a different timeline altogether. It's, it's yeah, that was like, long. what, last spring? So that probably feels like about 19 years ago now. It, yep, you're exact. There you go. Yeah. There yeah. you go. So I have to, let's, let's take a moment here. Beep Games, you are the founder of it. You're also a creative director at Xbox Game Studios. You have a storied history throughout gaming, uh, working on Voodoo Sorry. Vince back in the day. Oh. Well, I'm not sure if you've Googled yourself lately or tried to figure out how to pronounce your name for doing an interview, but you have quite the resume, good sir. Oh, go on with you and your flattery. My gosh. Well, now it's your turn. You go on. Tell me, how did you get into games? What's kept you there? How did you end up where you are? That's got to be just what a wild ride of elbow bumping and, and seeing great and amazing things be created. Yeah, I, I was at least uh, great adjacent, I think, for key parts of my career, which is uh, definitely very cool and very fun. Um uh, yeah, I mean, I gosh, it would have been uh, the beginning of the 90s when I got into uh, working in games. Um, before that, I'd been like, a graphic designer and stuff like that and, um, you know, did some uh, music and other odds and ends, but hadn't really found like that thing that really grabbed me, you know, and, and I'd studied uh, kind of traditional animation and filmmaking and things like that, but didn't necessarily want to go sleep on someone's floor in Los Angeles or, you know, do, do those things. It's like I, I loved the art of it. I loved uh, everything about making um, animation, for instance, but um, it was sort of interesting because I felt like I had all these skills that were sort of waiting for something to happen. And that was games. That was the game industry because suddenly it was like, Oh, it's, it's good to know about a lot of, a lot of little things and a lot of things that might've made you seem like you were just, you know, Oh, I'm just learning little odds and ends. And I really don't know. I don't have a real, um, you know, like uh, what, what, what do you call it? You know, the, a jack of all trades, but master of none, you know, but, and yet that's also where a lot of people in the game industry are, you know, feel, you know, they feel really at home when they have this weird mix of things that they like to do and that they're interested in. Everyone's kind of eclectic. Um, and you see that a lot, you know, especially in, in the game industry. So I just didn't know that I was like perfectly trained for something that didn't exist yet. Um, 
Well, I, when we tweeted out that we were going to be talking to you and, and having a conversation, uh, Voodoo Vince came up a whole lot. What's it like to be perhaps, I, I don't know that it's intrinsically tied, but you, your name and is synonymous with Voodoo Vince at this point, uh, particularly with the remaster coming out a few years ago. What's it like to create an iconic character like that? Oh gosh, I don't know if iconic's the word, but um, it's um, in the Xbox community. He comes up I, quite often. Know, I mean, I I love character platformers. I always loved them. I always thought they were really fun. Um, I know I've been playing a ton of stuff like Rayman Two on the Dreamcast around the time uh, around the time that I was starting to think about like oh, I would love to make. I need, you'll notice like even the way Vince's hover move works is not unlike Rayman Two, like you know the way the way he could move. And I, I thought that game did. Some really interesting things with how they staged the levels, um, changing up the mechanics in interesting, cool, and fun ways. Um, and I've been thinking for a while about like making a, you know, um, you know, uh, a character platformer. And I think I just was sitting around with a notepad one night. Um, I, you know, I just left, um, a job at, um, gosh, it was what it was, it was Humongous Entertainment. Then, um, there was the kind of grown up label called Cape Dog where I worked on an, uh, an RTS game uh, named Total Annihilation. And uh, that's where I met Ron Gilbert as well and became a kind of a lifelong friend at that point. Um, but yeah, I was sitting around notepad, just drew a little, just goofy looking little voodoo doll. And I thought, you know, I, I think I called it Vince, the voodoo doll, the game where getting hurt is good. And, and, you know, and, um, and it was kind of like the way it was like what I described with Bartlow's. I think I just started, um, I, I did a Sculpey of the character just a few days later, uh, just a really rough maquette. Um, did, did a lot of drawings and some pieces of concept art, and I kept thinking, yeah, there might be something here. Um, and it was a fun elevator pitch because you, you had that little twist of the idea that, that it's a character that tries to make doing bad things to the character kind of into a virtue. And uh, yeah, then this, it was really the process of pitching and uh, getting some friends interested in leaving their perfectly good jobs to um, come come and make a game with me. And, uh, that was, that was it. And then, you know, the, the character himself, as far as the personality, which I think is you know, obviously important for any, any platformer character went through, went through a lot of evolution. Um, there was a template originally for Vince where he was not going to speak. He was going to be completely silent. Um, cause I always thought of things like, like Rayman or Mario or other characters that are minimally verbal because I think character, uh, you know, players often bring their own, you know, they reflect themselves into the, those characters. I think when the character doesn't talk too much, but then over time, you know, we I worked around a lot of just sarcastic jerks, and we were constantly ridiculing each other and making a lot of jokes, and and a lot of that just start, just started started bleeding into the character. That started, you know, so you'll, if you'll notice that Vince does sound like a sarcastic middle aged man, that's probably not accidental because, <laughs> you know, his his uh, his parentage is right there. <laughs> yeah. Well. Okay, so the remaster came out in 2017. Is, are there hopes of reviving Voodoo events at all? Is that something you want to do? I mean, you've, when I, 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 would love, I, and I would love to. I would love to. Um, it's it's a it's a problem where I mean the the, the phrase I use for stuff like Vince is beloved but not popular. <laughs> mm. And I'm not saying that he's not um, successful in his own right in his own way, but. That, you know, there, there's obviously just like what what is the tolerance of a, of like a, a risk for like for publishers? Because, mm-hmm. you know, the games are very content intensive. If you really want to make a really good character mm-hmm. platformer, um, which means, you know, you have to have a decent sized team. You have to be able to have a, enough years, enough runway to build something truly great. And um, I, I don't know if the time is right yet mm-hmm. <laughs> for that or not. I mean, it, it, it seems like not. I mean, I, I did the remaster in, in 2017. Um Partly because the bits were going to just sit and never be seen again. 
Um, it, at that point, it had already been like 13 years, and um, there, the game doesn't is not compatible with the backwards compatibility program. Mm-hmm. Um, because we built a custom engine, we we had a lot of our, like we, we we made our own engine. We even wrote our own shaders. There was all kinds of stuff going on that just was not compatible with the backwards compat thing that they did. And that was that was a process that's I wouldn't call it automated, but it, it does better with certain types of engine and certain knowns, if you will. And we had just too many unknowns in in, mm-hmm. in our game. So there was like there was really it's and it, that made me sad. It felt like there was all this work um, that I did with some of my very most favorite people in in the game industry ever. And it was just going to like disappear. So the remaster was really about just um, getting it back out there again. Just so, you know, people who remembered it could play it again. And people who, you know, maybe hadn't heard of it could sort of um, maybe experience Vince, you know, um, you know, for the first time. So, yeah. Do you think it popped in my mind as you were talking? Do you think that the delivery mechanism you said uh, beloved but not popular delivery mechanism of subscription <laughs> services, Game Pass or, or, or the like? Does that open up more doors for games like Voodoo Vince or, or even Barlow's for games that people maybe not be initially exposed to to realize uh, that they might like a lot? Yeah, I, I think I think just as a way for people to sort of safely try things, it, it's a it's a terrific direction because you know um, I think there'll always be that desire on some people's part, like I want to have a physical copy and I want to feel like I own the thing, but. Um, you know, given what it costs per month and the fact that a lot of new, like, you know, first party things come out and a lot of other games come out, it's, it's a great way to just try a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, so just even just as a, a venue for, you know, I don't know, if, if the game is 50 bucks, you know, you might, you might think twice. If it's like, yeah, let's give it a try this afternoon and see if I like it because it's just in this wall of things that I can just pick from. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think there's, there's some validity to that. Um, and, and I think also, you kind of also need to fill all all the all the niches, right? You know, you, you can't have just one kind of game. You got to have stuff for a wide group of people, like different interests, different tastes, and different different tolerances for like um, how hardcore or just humorous or other things. You know, people people like a lot of different things out of their games. So that I think that's another benefit of of those kinds of services for sure. Gotcha. Very cool. So, and you're reminding me of just walking down the aisles of, of Blockbuster back in the day, picking a game and trying it. You know, yeah. and there's yeah. this, a lot of gems to be found that way. Uh, For sure. Thanks to games. Yeah. Founder of Beep Games. You're you're working on Total Annihilation. You founded Cave Dog, I believe. You, you founded Beep. You're working as a creative director. Where do you find time, and and why did you found found Beep uh, and take <laughs> us all the way to Bartlow's? How did you how did you get there from like like on your spare time? Oh, I don't know. I'm I'm I'm, I'm not smart. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, you know, it's it's funny because we started it again before all this the weirdness and the quarantine and everything hit, but it turned out to be really a great escape for um, a number of reasons. You know, while while we were all kind of, you know, sort of all paired up, um, uh, my wife Marianne was the the lead animator on Boot Events, um, but you know she she kind of like went home to raise our son and 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 do that. You know, like uh, gosh, right, we were actually not had not quite finished shipping the original Voodoo Vince when that happened. Um, and she, you know, dusted off her skills and got up ramped up on Maya again. And she did um, all the animations and most of the character models that you see in the game are, are from her. Um, and our, our son who was born during Voodoo Vince, he's on the, he's in the production babies credits of Voodoo Vince um, is an aspiring sound designer. So he did some audio work um, and some sound effects work and stuff for, for Bartlow. So, I don't know. It was uh, like 
it was kind of on some level a family project. And, and that was kind of a cool thing to have when, you know, you're, you're, um, you know, trapped. <laughs> you're all trapped together. <laughs> so, so you've got a family project, wife's yeah. involved, your son's helping out. I mean, really coming along into the sound design. Uh, hey, Clayton, who's in charge during that project? Who's really <laughs> in charge there? Um, I, I like to think of it as a, as a, uh, a committee of sorts, if you will. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, it, I think I did an okay job setting up sort of like the um, the outline, uh, the vision, if you will, for what the game is. Mm-hmm. And and I think this is true on you know, on boot events. It's true on a lot of things. If if everyone on the team understands what the vision is and what a thing is, is supposed to be, and everyone's kind of pulling in that direction, it's not like there's a ton of conflicts. Also, I've worked on. Um, I, I, I used to do graphic before I was in games. My wife and I did graphic design work together and like sitting in the same room, each of us on our computers doing, doing, um, really, really bad real estate flyers or whatever came our way for, you know, design work. <laughs> and, and, uh, um, so we, we learned early on just how to work together. So, um, I, I guess I, I, there were no real big conflicts. There were no, you know, there wasn't any, like anything that was like a, a crisis, I guess, like that. And part of it's just people who know each other and have built stuff together in the past. It's just, you know, it's just second nature. Just that everyone just sort of falls in and does their bit. I would imagine that also just builds some cool memories, all things considered, just to get to see that. I hope so. <laughs> that's, that's, that's kind of the goal, you know, and, and it was it was also just really fun to see um, um, Marianne, my wife, you know, just have, having her um, get back into animating again and, and to see her do this. I don't know if you've seen, the, you know, some of those little characters are just crazy delightful. Just the, the, the way they move and the personality she brings to the stuff. I think it just really pops off the screen. You're talking about in Bartlow specifically. In, in Bartlow's. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. My favorite is uh, the, the zombies, just the way they move and animate and the eyes on the station master. It, it's their eclectic Lovecraftian in some ways. Yeah, the, uh, I, think, I think her walk cycle for the way they just kind of like gyrate and move is just, um, I don't know, I just watch that all day. It's so fun. So we had uh, a lot of people wrote in with questions, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, one person who was uh, ecstatic to have you on. Lots of questions. Uh, Skedaddle asked uh, a number of things about exclusivity Game Pass because you work at Xbox. Do you ever bump into Phil Spencer and be like, hey, have you played Bartlow's? Do you ever get to run things by any of the, the names that people from the outside looking in would be you know, ecstatic to hear names of? Or is it just a personal private product that you enjoy just making quietly? Where's the line there? It's it's mostly really quiet. <laughs> really? Uh, I mean, it's a thing I, I do on my own um, and um, you know, I also make sure that like the people I work with know I'm doing stuff. So it's kind of like not a, a shock or a surprise. And, um, it, and also, you know, because part of what I do when I, when I work, you know, with our first party studios and I usually talk about creative issues and game design, um, I like still designing things. I still like to get my hands on building things because, um, you, you don't want to feel like you're just working in a purely editorial sense and falling in love with the sound of your own voice, you know, it's kind of like you, you want to make sure that you don't lose touch with the craft of, of, um, of, of, you know, of what we do. So um, even though they're just my, my little home games, my, they're, they're kind of like little indie projects. They're, they're valuable for that because I, I think it keeps me um, just, just close to like, you know, the, the processes and the realities of, of making a game. It makes you empathetic to those that you work with. Eh, yeah, I should, but probably not. <laughs> No, it does. <laughs> yeah. What is that? Is that what does a creative director do? Now I, I realize I'm venturing uh, a bit, and if I go too far, please back me off. But what does a creative director do at Game Xbox Game Studios? You said you're one of many. What's the role? 
Um, it, it probably varies with the team. Um, mm-hmm. And I've, I've, I've talked with, you know, creative directors who are, you know, more, they lean more toward like narrative and writing and, and some, um, are, their backgrounds are, are more strictly uh, visual arts. Um, I'm, I'm again, still this kind of weird, um, mongrel sort of like, you know, <laughs> patchwork person, um, where again, I, I, um, kind of touch on a lot of different disciplines. And, and what I, what I do mostly is, I focus on design. I, I look at, you know, the things that are being put into the game. I'll offer feedback, but I'll also work with other disciplines, you know, like, um, like even user research, um, as like people play the game and we're seeing how they're reacting to it. Um, and then, you know, kind of going through like, you know, what the issues that come up are like and how would we deal with them? How would we fix those? And, um, so it's sometimes just super pragmatic, just like, Hey, what's kind of like not working? What is working? What's, what can we get more out of? And um, I know it sounds kind of kind of hand wavy, but uh, you know, but it can get also very intensely into really detailed aspects of a game as well. Um, so yeah, it's uh, and 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 it's been a crazy ride at Microsoft because you know, I mean, I started off working on stuff that were like a lot of the Xbox Live Arcade games, you know, those little things that were like coming out on a regular basis, like kind of like small to mid sized games, and then um, I was over on Hololens for um, several years. And this is working on little prototypes. And again, what, what does like this new technology mean um, for games? What kind of games can be built with this? What kind of interesting things could be explored? Did the same thing with Connect. And I mean, um, I mean, I know it's like um, uh, a, a very cute game, but you know, like um, working on the, the Pixar game uh, for, for the, for, um, for the Connect was a total blast because you're trying to figure out how can you get, a, a, can you, how can you make an experience that, you know, multiple people can stand up in front of a camera and turn their, moving and jumping into something that, you know, resembles a game, you know, it's, um, I don't know. So it's sort of like going from making pretty, you know, like typical, like a character platformer, like absolutely goes onto a disc, but you play it on a console to um, all this weird emerging technology is something I don't think you, you get to do every day. So, so like adapting to those things and trying to bring some, again, just always thinking about what, what's going to make it really great. What's going to make it really fun. Um, while staying within whatever lines are put there by that technology, it's just super interesting. It, it really is. Um, um, I, I mean, I think creativity thrives on on limits in a weird way because, like, what can I do within this box that you've given me? Um, so um, that's I don't know. I'm kind, of, kind of talking about the big picture of of the kind of the, the the role I do at Microsoft, but yeah, that's 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 a part of it. It's it's hugely fascinating to, fascinating to me and a bit poetic in that you've worked with some of the most cutting edge tech at Microsoft and, and went with Hololens and the like, and then you came to make a game in your personal spare time about a machine hundred year old tin arcade uh, <laughs> yeah. rail shooter. Yeah, That's yeah, kind of cool. Based, based on like a, yeah, nineteen eighties arcade games. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, really cool, really, really fun game, I think, in Bartlow's Dread Machine. I would encourage anyone and everyone to check it out. It's on Steam and Xbox, correct? That is true, yeah. And where would you point people if they wanted to find out more of your work, follow you on your social medias if you're interested in that? Uh, what would you like to point people's attention towards as we exit out? Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I have a, I have, I'm, I'm on Twitter. I probably don't use it nearly enough, and um uh, but yeah, anyone's welcome, of course, to follow or ask me a question. If they have anything they want to know about, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, if I can, <laughs> within reason. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Very cool. Well, Clayton Kozlerik, pardon me. Thank you for joining us today. I appreciate you giving the time and the insight. You're very welcome. It was, it was awesome. Thanks so much.